Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. In a world of tech and innovation's race, where startups rise and some may fall, the Masters of Scale guide with grace their lessons heard by all. Their podcast, A Beacon of Light, illuminates the path to growth. With every episode, a new insight and wisdom for all to know. Hey everyone, it's Bob Safian here. And that voice you just heard was Masters of Scale executive producer Jordan McLeod reading part of a sonnet written by ChatGPT. And we'll have more from ChatGPT later in the show. In fact, this entire episode is all about AI. In these Need to Know episodes, Reid Hoffman and I have unfiltered conversations about the most important business topics impacting entrepreneurs right now. Normally, we jump between a range of topics, but there's no topic hotter right now than ChatGPT and AI. So for this installment, AI will be our focus. We'll cover issues from the looming AI search wars to how recent developments have upended the risk-reward analysis of embracing AI and what leaders of businesses large and small should be doing right now to make the most of this AI inflection point. Let's get to it. You gotta have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally gonna be amazing. There are so many easy ways. So, so what to do. I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working at a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made it. Just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn, VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners, which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process, It's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. So, Reed, usually these need-to-know episodes bounce around a bit, touching on a bunch of different trends in the business world. But this time, we're going to dig in deep on one topic because it's so talked about right now. ChatGPT and AI. You were an early supporter of OpenAI, which 
created ChatGPT. You're also on the board of Microsoft, which is invested in and aligned with ChatGPT. You've recently started a new AI business, Inflection AI with Mustafa Suleiman, but have to start with ChatGPT itself. Since it's introduced last year, it's been like a phenomenon. The number of users has ballooned beyond what anyone expected. It's remaking assumptions in businesses, in education, in the media, in culture. This reception for ChatGPT, did it surprise you? Not really. And part of that's because, you know, I've seen what the magic is that's coming with AI and large language models for a number of years. And part of what over the last couple of years may seem like prescient random predictions now coming true is partially just because I've been seeing stuff and being able to trend where it's going to. And part of the thing that the chat GBT did is it made the magic of current foundational models, large language models available to people in a way that they hadn't been available before. And so you get this kind of like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then of course that begins to show the lens to the future for a bunch of people. And then you get the classic tidal wave of interest, both of where I generally am, which is this amazing place of where you can get. And then obviously people who are always concerned and fearful about change, you get that too. So to kick things off, Reed, we have Masters of Scale executive producer Jordan McLeod, who's prepped a special question for us, written by ChatGPT. Jordan? My prompt for ChatGTP was, write a question about using AI to scale companies that a business journalist would ask an iconic entrepreneur who has founded a social network and an AI company. And so here's the question that it pumped out, right? Okay, read. In your experience as the founder of both successful social networks and an AI company, how have you leveraged artificial intelligence to drive efficiency and scalability in your business? And what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs looking to integrate AI into their operations? So a couple of notes on the question, and then I will answer the question. So one is, I think it shows some of the current limitations, although I think the GPT models will be evolving fast, and this is current limitation, which is, it's a fairly generic question. Bob, you know, in his sleep would come up with five more <laughs> fun spin and other kinds of questions, you know, as ways of doing it. You know, two is that I do think that one of the lines of sight that I've seen from these foundational and large language models is that there will be a co-pilot for every profession. There will be a tool for every professional function between useful and essential. Last year, I said within five years, I was giving myself time. I think these tools will be within the next three to five, some of which already exist, like the Microsoft Copilot. And I think that gives you some lens to how AI will also being used within various kinds of uh, social networks, whether it's suggesting or modifying commentary reply or what you see in the newsfeed, which machine learning techniques that resemble current AI have been being used. Obviously, a lot has been used in advertisement, and you know people tend to beat too much of a alarmist drum about that because you know they go, oh, it's manipulating you, and it's like, well, it's trying to find the thing that's most relevant to you, <laughs> right? And actually, in fact, I'd rather see ads that are relevant to me, and it's not like manipulating me like subliminal advertising. It's just simply saying, oh, you look like the kind of person who likes reading philosophy books, so here's a philosophy book rather than a you know how to do cross stitch. You know, and that's handy. And all of that is already present in social networks. Thanks, Jordan. 
one of the things that's interesting to me is that ChatGPT came out of a smaller, newer, less established business. You know, like the bigger players like Microsoft and Google and whatnot, they've had AI products that they've been working on, some that they released, but a lot that they've been working on more quietly. But it's almost like no one wanted to take the risk of putting something out there with flaws. And now that ChatGPT has broken that seal, like the gloves are off. Well, I think it's kind of this classic set of things around startups can take risks. Obviously, we're living in a very tech-lash moment. You know, I'm endeavoring intensely to get people to start thinking about how they can build such a great future and to stop trying to enshrine the past against the future and say, you know, like, oh, no, no, we can't allow this chat GBD thing to happen. It's like, how do we use it? But of course, in the environment of tech clash, what has happened is people say, well, you know, well, you can get it to say something bad. And the answer is, yeah, you generally can. But by the way, you can also get Google or Bing to get to a bad search result too, or a YouTube video. It happens. And boy, the, you know, we've been talking for a long time about misinformation and issues in social networks and how to do increase the level of information versus misinformation. So it's imagine the future where we can get to and where we're going that's so important on this stuff. That's kind of the reason that it's important to take these risks. And the larger companies weren't taking these risks. Although, by the way, credit to Microsoft, which saw this stuff and started building out products such as we began to see the beginning of the Bing announcement and Bing release, you know, earlier this week. And by wrapping in Bing, we're getting factuality, we're making it much more directed and helpful that search is normally bad at, like product reviews or travel or other kinds of things. We're going to take some slings and arrows, but we're going to get out there, get the product to market and iterate on it with the substance of trying to make it a great magical thing for most people while you're always fixing stuff that's suboptimal. The chat GPT frenzy didn't come out of nowhere. You helped set up OpenAI in 2015, but back then it was a, a not-for-profit. When and why did the expectations change to turn it to a for-profit? Because that, it must have been something that you thought would help accelerate the pace of, of impact. Well, it's still fundamentally a nonprofit, And even the structure that's set up now kind of rolls up to an economic return because they want to get the capital in order to do this. They're getting capital and capital wants return for that. And there's a whole arrangement with investors, but it still fundamentally rolls up to a, how do you create AI that's beneficial for humanity as a goal and setting that up as part of it. Now, as it's matured, it now becomes a platform for a whole bunch of startups doing stuff. It has in-depth relationships with Microsoft and other companies for doing stuff, all of which brings commercial drumbeats into it. Each of these becomes its own hybrid, unique beast, and OpenAI is becoming its own hybrid, unique beast and where it ends up. But I do know that the heart and soul of the OpenAI mission is entirely about, like, how do we make this maximum beneficial for humanity? And the commercial stuff behind it is to power that versus power an operating margin or a stock price. So to be able to generate the resources to keep that yes. mission moving forward. Yes. You mentioned, you know, Microsoft integrating ChatGPT into Bing, potentially posing a threat to Google's dominance in web search. Meanwhile, Google's talking about its AI called 
Bard and rolling out its AI-powered services, does ChatGPT really pose a threat to Google? Is that the area that you think AI is going to have the biggest business impact? Well, I think AI is going to have a huge business impact in search for a couple of reasons. So one is categories like product search get fuller and fuller of ads and junkier and junkier search results. And one of the things that you have an opportunity to do is to say, well, as opposed to giving you a whole bunch of links of which a bunch of those are paid links on advertising, which by the way, sometimes a useful search result, but you know, that's not necessarily what the people who are paying for them are fully trying to achieve. And, and as opposed to like all, all like lots of links, it gives you actual answer. And that's obviously one of the things that grew Wikipedia because what people are looking for is, no, no, I'm not looking for 10 blue links. I'm looking for something that has a substance of an answer of what I'm, of what I'm looking for. It isn't some kind of like SEO engine to give me vanilla stuff. It's like a personalized, instantaneous Wikipedia page. It has some real accuracy. Now, I think there's a bunch of other stuff that will also be interesting. I think that AI will touch every single profession, not just the, I happen to be using search to do research or figuring something out. You know, you already have Microsoft's Copilot for engineers. That's the language that I'm using to say whether or not you're a journalist or a podcast producer or a investor or a graphic designer or a lawyer or a doctor, you know, or a small business owner. In each of these cases, there will be a one plus AI Copilot tools to make you more effective as a professional. So that will be another whole swath. Like I was talking to a musician. I said, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how AI is going to be transforming your world. And the first 15 to 20 seconds are going to terrify you. And I hope by the second minute, you're going to be curious and intrigued and delighted. Right. And he said, okay. And I said, all right. So right now I have access to not public programs that could go create lyrics and music and so forth that's kind of in the style of John Lennon. And it won't be a great, it won't be the, oh my God, imagine or other things, but it will be something like, oh yeah, yeah, I could see that John Lennon could have made that. And then, you know, he's okay, I'm terrified. And like, yeah, because you're thinking, oh my God, I'm not needed anymore. But say, for example, you were John Lennon and you had this tool. You'd say, well, I want to create this song about imagination and connectivity and mutual love and so forth. Oh, well, I really love the bits between second 10 and second 20 and the minute mark and the minute 15 mark. I'm going to take those bits out and I'm going to make something much better. And then, of course, he's you know, like, oh my God, I can create so much better now and so much faster and, and in different ways and so forth. When do I get it? Well, you know, it's, I don't know, maybe next year, maybe the year after, I'm sure people will be building them, <laughs> right? But that's the kind of thing that we're getting into. Then there'll be the AI functioning behind the, the scenes some doing, you know, operating on tech, like the stuff we were talking about earlier in social networking, like relevancy for news feeds or advertisements. These kinds of things will all be part of it. And that's just the beginning. That's just what we can see as the curtain begins to be drawn back and a little bit of light comes in through the window. So Reed, how should entrepreneurs and business owners and leaders be reacting to the opportunities and risks that AI presents for them right now? Entrepreneurs have to be skating to where the puck is going, not to where the puck is, because it's kind of that build out of the future. And so they need to do the same thing here with AI. There's obviously places where you go, well, the AI is not that central to the stuff I'm doing. And you know, it'll, it'll be changing how professionals operate and so forth, but my thing won't need as much, fine. But if it is, the question will be is, okay, how do I also skate to where the puck is going? 
And in the competitive world that is business, that is startups, it's how do I skate fast and accurately <laughs> to that. And so if I have a smoothie shop business, maybe it's not my first concern is AI, but if I'm creating educational resources or medical related things, it may be really something that I need to become more comfortable with. Yes. And there's a whole range. And even if you like the smoothie shop, you might be thinking, well, should I look at whether or not I have this as part of my answering machine? Like, is there a service there? You know, and obviously it may not be as so essential to building the smoothies or Maybe I should go on a chat GPT and be creative about some interesting new recipes. And that could be differential, but it's like thinking about what are the things that I could do that I could use this to skate where the puck is going, to be inventive and creative in the future, right? Use the tool to differentiate yes. yourself. Where can you do that? Yes. For example, I've never run a smoothie shop, but I'm already starting to think about like, well, if I was running one, hmm, what if I had a special flavor of each day? How would I generate that? Oh, I could use this to give me a bunch of ideas or, you know, or maybe I want to experiment with a, a couple of marketing slogans, you know, on the local radio. Well, I could play with this and experiment with some marketing slogans. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff to do. Yes. And I, I guess it becomes much more efficient if you want to do personalized outreach to your customers or your community. You know, there's much more efficient ways to generate all of that through the communication tools of things like ChatGPT. Yeah. When a new tech emerges, it often disrupts the existing tech giants. But I'm wondering if this is an area where like the giants end up being the beneficiaries because of the resources and the data required to build and operate AI processes, you know, that like smaller and startup businesses might be more vulnerable in the long run. Now, obviously, OpenAI is a startup, so... I appreciate that it started that way. But if you're a smaller business, do you have to wait for one of these bigger businesses to create a tool like, you know, like the ones you cite, like a co-pilot? Well, with some knowledge of both the OpenAI and Microsoft plans, they are making APIs available to startups. They've done that already. It's part of the kind of the platform business of what they're doing. And there's a number of my own startups that are already building on them. Tome, which is doing kind of PowerPoint presentations. Coda with Shashir Marotra, who we've had on Masters of Scale, is doing stuff around, you know, how this kind of integrates into a mobile and internet native docs as powerful as apps kind of tool. And part of it is because there's so much surface area to invent and amplify. The large companies will only be able to do a few of them that are most central. So I think the answer is it will both benefit large-scale tech companies, but it will also benefit a bunch of startups across the whole field. And I think there's also a bunch of startups that are also doing their own fundamental work. Inflection is one of those. You know, Adept is another. So I think there is fundamental work that is happening that will also create more space and opportunity that will also come from startups. Okay, we're going to take a break. We'll be back right after. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of Live Events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders, 
Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Before the break in this special AI-themed episode of Need to Know, Reed and I talked about what AI and the ChatGPT phenomenon means for big tech, smaller businesses, and entrepreneurs. Now we dig into the hype around AI, both for and against, some of the technical challenges and costs of AI tools, and what may be coming out of China. You're clearly like super excited about this area. I mean, not everybody is as excited, right? We've seen schools trying to block ChatGPT and creatives expressing concerns. There are a lot of threats that people ascribe to this technology. Do you feel like those risks are real? Are people like overreacting? Look, there is transformation, and with transformation comes stress, uncertainty, unsettlement, risk, pain, all of that sort of stuff. And I deeply sympathetic to all of that. But it's also like, you know, when cars got introduced, it was like, well, okay, the whole horse and carriage business is going away. When calculators became cheap and readily available, there was a huge, oh, this is going to cause people's brains to erode because they won't be able to do math anymore. They should still be using the slide rule. And it's like, no, actually, in fact, changes how we make progress, changes how we make much better and much bigger things. Doesn't mean it isn't painful getting there. Doesn't mean it doesn't change people's jobs. Doesn't mean that people who are older and are less less nimble and less interested in adopting new technology don't feel at a disadvantage to the younger people who are going out and adopting this technology and making new things. And that creates uncertainty, just like in education. It's like, well, but wait, we have this college application process and we have this essay judging process and this means that we'd have to change. And you're like, yes, it does, (laughs) right? Full stop. But like, as opposed to going, oh my God, change terrible. It's like, no, no, how do we use this to get much better thinking and learning and critical thought and, and ways to amplify it? Let's say that at the speed of what we're going, every cell phone could have an AI tutor and an AI doctor on it. If you delay that by five years, think of the under-delivery of quality of life for every citizen that you are doing by delaying that. Is your responsibility to delay that or to get that AI tutor and that AI doctor on every phone? And obviously, you say, whoa, what what if the doctor gives a bad diagnosis? Well, by the way, doctors do give bad diagnoses. It does happen, right? What you want it to be is a good frontline. And by the way, if the person can't afford a doctor, is uninsured or something else, having at least something that says, look, you know, you should cross-check this and all the rest, but here's something to look at, right? Could be super helpful. And looking at that opportunity about what we can possibly do here is, I think, a moral responsibility. That's what we should be really working towards. I'm not saying that there aren't negative things that we should work against, but oh my gosh, should we get to the good things as fast as we possibly can. When we had legendary investor and Bridgewater Associates founder Ray Dalio on the show, you and he had a very spirited exchange 
about the upsides and possible downsides of AI. It didn't make it into the episode, but the whole exchange is available to Masters of Scale members. Let's have a listen to a small section of it. I'm a guy who has found that making algorithms has been so fabulous in my decision making, and I really believe it's totally great, right? But I have a belief when you have artificial intelligence applied to things that might be different in the future and in the past, and you get algorithms that you can't really understand, they don't give you good understanding, and you bet on them, you're going to crash. And since we're all connected, that scares me. So Ray's argument was that as AI proliferates and it's applied to more new things, you may get algorithms that reach conclusions in ways that we can't track, can't decode. And if we rely on them, we add a layer of risk that, as Ray puts it, you're going to crash. Ray isn't alone in this sort of caution. Lots of folks are conflicted about AI. For those that take a similar position to Ray's, what's your response? Look, I do think that it's a risk factor when you have things running in systems you don't really understand, which, by the way, permeates our lives. The market is a very rich algorithmic system, and we don't have that good understanding. And that's part of the reason why we end up in surprising phase changes like you know, the credit default swap scandal and other kinds of things as, as ways of doing this. Yeah, we don't understand the economy and inflation either. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we do live already today, biological systems, drugs, other kinds of things, in all kinds of complex systems that we kind of approximate. And then we kind of have fallback plans for when it breaks and what we do. And, you know, these will be some additional systems like that. Now, my hope is with these systems, we'll also figure out how to use them to have our fallback systems. We'll have to use them to understand these other complex systems and so forth. But I don't think it's because we're only going to have simple systems. It's like, you know, maybe a more simple parallel is my 1972 Volkswagen Beetle, I used to be able to repair some with my Swiss Army knife when I was driving it around. Not so much true anymore with, you know, the Honda that I'm driving or the Tesla that I'm driving. <laughs> you know, you have to take those in, they connect it to the computer system and it goes, oh, that's the problem. And they do something. And, and that's a complex system that does that. But you can design them and test them and do a whole bunch of stuff in order to make it work. So that's the reason why I suddenly, you know, was like, nah, Ray, you're wrong. <laughs> right. Not to say that you're not wrong that there's an issue here to pay attention to and to manage, and it adds a risk factor. But to say that the goal is to have everything that's kind of of a simplicity form that most people can understand in its baseline fashion, that's not where everything's going, including the economy, which he operates in. When new tech waves come like this, we tend to get super excited, and then we sort of go over our skis and we get a little bit of hype in there. You know, we certainly saw that with crypto over the last year. Do you worry about a hype cycle with AI? Yeah. I, look, I tend to think there are definitely times where a hype cycle gets out of control and promises things that aren't going to happen at all in this tech window cycle, et cetera. You know, we've seen that multiple times through virtual worlds. 
and kind of metaverses. I think I've lost track of the number of, and now we're all going to be in a virtual world, <laughs> you know, kind of claims from the very earliest days of my own personal tech career. So there are times. On the other hand, there are also times where you say, look, the exact thing, like, you know, for example, I do think that there's some places where there's drum beating about AI, advancing science, taking large levels of risk and so forth, that when you go and play with the current tools, you see both those positive options and other negative things aren't currently in the cards. I think there's this histrionics in both ways, and that hype can be bad. On the other hand, the fundamental transformation of every professional job and every industry is full of professionals is, I think, line of sight visibility over N years. And I think that's one of the things that I think is going to be, you know, I don't think we are yet overhyped on. From the beginning of Masters of Scale, you've asked your guests about their feelings about AI in a lightning round series of questions that Masters of Scale members get to hear. Does AI fill you with hope or dread? For a quick refresh, read. let's hear a few of the answers we've had to that question over the years. Artificial intelligence fills you with hope or dread. Pick one. Hope. Hope. Hope, because it's just a tool. I think it's hope. I've had too many conversations with Elon Musk about this, so dread. It could be either, and it's entirely up to us. Ooh, I'm going to have to go on a limb here. I'm going to say dread. I want to say hope. Hope. I think we will make the decisions together as a humanity to make it be filled with hope. Hope. Mostly hope and a tiny little bit of dread. I want to cheat. I love it, but I'm afraid of it. <laughs> hope, if in the right hands... Hope. It's inevitable. It's coming. Let's embrace it and get good at it. Dread. Oh, definitely hope. You know, think about how technology has changed the world and my parents' life and their parents' life and and my children's life is going to continue to change. That's going to be a positive part of it, I believe. Ah, pick one. One. Uh, Hope. Uh, Hope. Hope. I love that. A range of answers in there. But in general, I think it's right to say our guests tend to ultimately fall more on the side of hope. Why do you think that is? We get a higher balance of people saying hope on Masters of Scale because we have entrepreneurs and people who create the future and go do that. And so they're like, no, no, we know how to shape this and we're going. I think the broader populace and the commentators have a higher answer of dread because they don't feel their hands on it as much. They don't feel the creation of the future. They worry about change, et cetera. And so I think the thing to do is think about, well, what are the things we need to do to create more utopia and less dystopia? And it's never only positive impact. There will always be some negative impact too. But the goal is to say, well, there's 10x plus the positive impact to the negative impact, maybe 100x plus. That's part of the reason I talk about the AI tutor and the AI doctor. Because like, well, those are good. <laughs> <It's> like, yes. <laughs> what can we say about the resources required to run AI? Sam Altman at OpenAI tweeted that the computer costs are eye-watering. I think that was the phrase he used. And the data behind it tends to need manual cleaning sometimes from humans. Will this cost of AI be passed along? Or do you think that over time that cost will as with many industries will, certainly in tech, will come way down. Well, 
The short answer is both. I mean, when you build, develop something new and big and expensive, like say, for example, a personal computer, it starts as super expensive. I remember when it was like, oh, you have a PC? <laughs> right? Can I come use your PC? And obviously, one of the things that's great about competition and all the rest of this stuff for market share is everyone's going to be trying to parse this stuff to get as much breadth of market participation as possible. Let's say, for example, in whatever way it is, it costs you an extra buck a month in the a search category or in a two bucks a month in a document creation category. Well, what's the amount of time that it would need to save you to make that worthwhile, right? Like if it saved you three hours on your searches per month, not worth a buck, <laughs> right? And the short answer is to many people, the answer is yes, absolutely. And, you know, you say, well, but that's a first world answer. It's like, yeah. And as the prices go down, that will become everything, just like everything else. And so, you know, part of what the internet brings and mobile brings and the cloud transformation brings is that you can get the product distributed to a lot of people much more quickly, which then, of course, means when you have a much broader customer base, you know, your pricing doesn't necessarily start so astronomically. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was Baidu's ErnieBot out of China. Are they legitimately in the AI arms race, if not for English language search, then for AI development? Do we even know? So Baidu has all of the talent to do this kind of thing. And a lot of stuff has been published as papers, so they can look at the papers and they can do their own work and they make it. So I would presume that it is a real thing. And I haven't yet gone and called my friends who you know are native Chinese and deep technologists and said, so... You know, you've seen ChatGPT and you see this. Anything that you could pass along as a learning or interest or comparison with ErnieBot? But I'm certain there will be. You know, personally, China is one of the places where I most learn new parts of the theory of the game from technology, whether it's go-to-market or product or business model or other things. And so along with a number of Silicon Valley people, I pay a lot of attention to the inventiveness and the creativeness and the hustle that you see in Chinese technologists and entrepreneurs. Well, Reed, we've covered a lot of ground on this topic, but at the same time, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. Uh, fascinating as ever. And thank you so much for your insights and your sharing. Always fun. Thanks, Bob. Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. Like Masters of Scale co-host Reed Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future. And Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Jordan McLeod. 
Our head of content and production is Lori Hoffman. Our producers are Adam Skuse, Catherine Clark Bray, Alex Morris, Tucker Ligurski, and Chris Gautier. Our editor-at-large is Bob Safian. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Andrew Nolt, and Brad Worrell. Mixing and mastering by Baron Bastinelli. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Elisa Schreiber, Paria Finger, Saida Sapieva, Greg Beato, Adam Heiner, Alfonso Bravo, Colin Howarth, Willem Crowles, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Capitano, Samuel Puta, Anna Pisano, Sarah Tarter, Leah Sermetis, Charlie Manessis, Chineme Azequena, Emily McManus, Hallie Bondi, and Sierra Black. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership.